how do banks work? What do banks actually do with the money that we put into our bank account? And how can banks go bust? And what we can, can we do to protect ourselves from banks going bust? What is the stock market? How do we buy and sell shares? And once we've bought and sold shares, what do those shares actually entitle us to? We're going to explore all of these questions today in my lecture on how the financial system works. This is the second in my Gresham College series on basic financial literacy. Thank you very much to everybody, both in person and online, for attending. So let me start with the first question, which is how banks work. And a good place to start is to consider what a bank actually is. A bank is just like a shop. But rather than buying and selling clothes, what you're buying and selling is money. So I think a good analogy to have is, well, how do shops work? Well, what do we have in a shop? Is we have some suppliers, so they might be clothes manufacturers, and a retail store, let's say Marks and Spencer, that will buy the clothes from the supplier. And they might buy a hundred shirts, and those shirts they might buy at five pounds each. And then what does the shop do? The shop then turns around and sells those shirts to customers, us, when we go to the shop. And they'll sell for more than they buy. They might buy the shirts for five pounds and sell them for nine pounds. And the difference between the two, that will partially be their profit, but it also partially goes to some costs that shops have to bear. For example, they need to operate the stores, put on the lights, train, have, hire the staff. But an also an important function is to screen. What does this mean? This means to check the suppliers of the shirts that they're selling to make sure the shirts are not going to fall apart. But also they might check, are the shirts made in an ethical way? Are they using child labour and so forth? But that's how a shop works. It's a way of connecting buyers and sellers, it's not that the shirt manufacturer directly sells to us. The shop is what's known as an intermediary. And that's exactly what a bank is. Right? We often hear a bank as being a financial intermediary. What it does is it connects suppliers of money to customers who need money. But suppliers of money, they're often known as depositors. So it might be that I earn money from my job. I don't need all of that money to pay my rent and to pay my food. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to supply some money to the bank. I'm going to deposit my money in a bank account. And what I'm going to get from that, as we considered in the last lecture, I get interest. So the interest that I get for putting money in the bank, that is a bit like what the clothes manufacturer gets by selling the clothes to Marks and Spencer. And so let's say I'm going to lend £100 at 5%. I'm just going to keep the numbers the same as last time to make things simple. And so what does the bank do? The bank then turns around and then lends that money to other people. And the customers of a bank are known as borrowers. And why might they need that money? Well, for a variety of purposes, they might want to buy a house, but the cost of how the house is more than the money they have. They might want to fund their children's education. They might want to renovate their house. They might want to buy a car. All of those things are reasons why people might want to borrow money. And just like the shop, the bank 
will charge more to its customers, the borrowers, than it pays its suppliers, the depositors, it might borrow at 5% and lend at 9%. And what does that difference go towards? Well, the analogy continues, partly it's profits, partly it's operating the actual bank, right, you need to run the branches, partly it's screening, although there's a big difference here. Right, with Marks and Spencer, you, you screen the suppliers, the people who actually provide you with the shirts. But here, as a bank, they screen the borrowers. Right, before you can borrow from the bank, you need to fill in some forms, you need to declare your income to make sure that you can pay it back. But there's one other thing that I like to add here, which is monitoring. Right, when you are a shop, once the transaction is completed, you might just forget about the customer. So once I've sold my shirt to the customer, there is no future relationship unless the customer wants to return the shirt because it's faulty. But when you're a bank and you lend to a borrower, right, that relationship continues for the lifetime of a loan. If it's a mortgage, it could be 25 years. And what you might do is you might continue to monitor the borrower. For example, if they miss one mortgage payment, as might have happened during the pandemic, you might check and you might forgive them. You might think, well, actually, I'm checking why they did this. Actually, I think they will pay it back in the future, so I'm going to keep the loan live. But it might be in some cases you need to take more active action. Why? Because what you're concerned about is that the borrower might not pay back the money. Right, so here the borrower's borrowed £100. What happens if the borrower can't pay you back? Well, what most banks do when they lend money, is they take what's known as security or otherwise known as collateral. So what the borrower does is pledges to the bank an asset and says to the bank, if I don't pay you back, right, you're allowed to get that asset. Right, some of you will know what a pawnbroker does. Right, if I want to pawn off like an item of jewellery, I go to the pawnbroker and I say, lend me some money, and if I don't get you back, pay you back, you can keep that jewellery. And that's the same with a bank, although the security is typically not jewellery, it might be something like a house. And that's indeed what a mortgage is. It is a loan, but it's a loan where the security is your house. So if you don't pay back your mortgage, then the bank takes that house from you. Right, so that's why they often say your house is at risk if you don't keep up your mortgage payments. So that does provide some security to the bank, hence the name, because right, if the borrower can't pay back the loan, maybe the borrower loses his or her job, the bank can still get the house. But it only provides partial security. Why? Let's say you lend £100 to the borrower, and the borrower has a house worth £100. The borrower goes bankrupt. You actually get the house yourself. But if you want to sell that house and to pay back your depositors, you often won't get £100 for that. Why? You often have to sell in a hurry. And that's what happened in the financial crisis, right? We had a lot of banks which needed to sell houses, but they couldn't get the true value. So they have to sell at what's known as a discount, 
And maybe the bank might only get £90. So then, given that, what does the bank do to begin with? Right, if we go back to the shop, what does a shop try and do? The shop tries to sell everything it buys. If the shop buys 100 shirts from its supplier, it tries to sell all 100 shirts to its customers. But interestingly, for a bank, it doesn't want to do that. Right? If it borrows £100 from depositors, people like you and I, who put our money into the bank account, it might not want to lend out the entire £100. Because no matter how careful it's been, no matter how much security it is taking for its loans, there is a chance that people won't pay it back and the security it won't be able to liquidate for that full value. So what the bank does is the bank holds a fraction of the deposits in reserve. So rather than lending out the entire 100, it might keep £10 in reserve and lend only 90. And this is called fractional reserve banking. Right, you don't try to lend out everything you get, you keep a fraction in reserve. And how this operates in reality is that in every country, there is a banking regulator which sets that fraction. Right, that fraction reduces the risk that the bank goes bust because it means that the bank cannot lend out everything it gets, it needs to keep something in reserve. And notice, the regulator might set a number, let's say it's 5%, but a bank might choose to be even more careful, even more prudent, and choose a different number, let's say 10%, because it wants to reduce its risk. And that 10% is what we're going to work with. Now, here's an interesting thing. Now, let's go back to the depositor putting £100 in the bank. The bank that lends £90 to a borrower, I've creatively named borrower A, so they're borrowing that money. And why are they borrowing that money? Well, what they want to do is they want to hire a tutor for their children. So let's say they're going to hire a piano teacher. And so they're going to be paying £90 in piano lessons to that piano teacher. But here's the really interesting thing. What is that piano teacher going to do with that money? Well, she might put it back into the bank. And then the bank now has some extra £90. And then what will the bank do with that £90? It's going to lend out 90% of that, right? Because it's going to keep 10% in reserve, £9, and then lend the £81 to another borrower. And you can see how this will continue. That borrower will spend the money. The person who receives that money will put it back in the bank. And so what we have is a virtuous circle where money is being created. Right? You take in some money, you lend it. Then what you lend gets deposited back. And so what you have is a table which looks like this. We started with the original £100 of money, which was put in. £90 was lent. £10 was kept in reserve. That £90 was put back in the bank. 90% of that was lent. The rest was put in reserve. And so on and so forth. And in the end, after all of this is played through, if this keeps happening, what happens is the bank overall has taken £1,000 of deposits. 
It's kept £100 in reserve, again, 10%, and it's created £900 of loans. And so this is the most fundamental feature of what banks actually do. It is called money creation out of the original £100 that the bank has been given, it's actually created £1,000 of money in terms of the total amount that it's lent to customers and the total amount that it is created, uh, it's, it's, been, it's borrowing from customers in the form of its deposits. And why is money creation so powerful? Right, because it allows people to do stuff that they might not be able to afford. Well, it allows the parents to pay the piano teacher when they might not have money, they could borrow it. It might allow somebody else to renovate their home. And so this is why banks have a positive role in society. It allows people to do things which their current finances might not have. Now, there's a couple of things I'd like to stress here. Like the bank has created money, which is why I've called it money creation, but the bank hasn't made money, right? Because each time the bank lends money to somebody else, right? Money has left the bank, but it's been replaced by the fact that it's owed the money. And if you look at the bottom line here, at the end, the bank has £1,000 in deposits. So customers like you and I have put £1,000 in the bank account. The bank owes us 1000 but similarly... The bank owns 1,000. The bank has kept 100 in reserve and the bank is owed 900 pounds from all the mortgages and so on that it's lent out. So the bank's net position is zero here, right? It owes this, it owns that. Just like after one step, the bank's net position was also zero. So the bank hasn't made any money in the process it's just allowed people to do transactions through creating money. But then you might think, well, how does the bank actually make money? Well, how the bank makes money is, as I mentioned on the second slide, what it will pay the depositors will be a 5% interest rate, but what it will charge its customers, its borrowers, will be 9%, and it makes money on the difference between that two. And then you might think, well, how did I get to this 1,000, right? Well, one thing is I could have gone through this entire table for ages, but there's a trick, and those of you who do GCSE maths, you might sort of know this. What you do is you take the original deposit, you divide, you multiply it by one divided by the reserve ratio. So remember, we said 10% was how much they were keeping back. One over 10% is 10. And so this means that you're multiplying everything that you get 10 times by creating more money. And that makes sense, right? The smaller you keep in reserve, the smaller the reserve ratio, the more you can lend out, the more money you're creating, and therefore you have a greater money multiplier. The money that you get in is multiplied by many, many times. So let's go back to the idea about how banks actually make money for themselves, right? So they've taken in £1,000 of deposits, they lend out £900, 
and they're lending out at a higher interest rate than what they borrow. And so that's pretty simple to make money. Right? As my economics A-level teacher said in class, right, banks, they receive more interest than they pay. You'd have to be pretty stupid not to be able to make money as a banker, which led my classmate to say to me, Alex, even you could make money as a banker. But what is the risk here? Right? Well, the risk is the following. The depositors, you and I who have bank accounts, we are lending short term. Right? We can withdraw our money at any time. Right? With a current account, you want to have what's known as liquidity, the ability to get your money when you want to. Why? Because I have no idea when I might be in a car accident or I need to redo my pipes or so on. I want that flexibility. But the people who borrow from the bank, they want to borrow long-term, right? So with a mortgage, a mortgage often is lasting 25 years. Why? Because it might take 25 years to pay off the mortgage it's so high compared to my income. And the people who borrow from banks are not just people, they might be companies. And a company might borrow in order to develop a cancer cure, and it might take, again, 25 years to develop that cancer cure and to commercialise it. So this is the big problem, is that banks borrow short-term, but they lend long-term. And so in addition to those three things I mentioned earlier, the banks do one other thing, which is called maturity transformation. So what do I mean by maturity? Maturity means the length of a loan. The bank transforms short-term lending by us when we put that money into the bank account into long-term loans that it provides its customers and it allows them to pursue their long-term projects, be it buying a house, funding your children's education or investing in account secure. But that comes at a risk. And what is the risk? Often we think that with the bank, the risk is the project that you lend to. Maybe the company you lent to is going to go bankrupt. But let's say the bank has done a fantastic job at screening and monitoring, and its customers will always repay. They will never go bankrupt. But still, there's a risk because of this maturity mismatch. What happens if the depositors suddenly want to withdraw more than £100? Right? So, what the bank will need to do is it will want to liquidate its loans and ask its customers to pay them back. But it can't, right? Because if you've got a mortgage from the bank, you only need to pay back every month what you agreed. If the bank asks you, can you pay me back earlier? You say, no, I took out a 25-year mortgage. I can repay you on the schedule that we said. I'm not going to repay you earlier. I don't have the money. So what does the bank do in that situation? If the bank needs money, well, what it might do is it might sell the loan to somebody else. Right? So if I own a bank and I'm owed sort of £100 by my mortgage customers, I might go to Claire and say, oh, I need the money now. Uh, I'll give you this £100 of loans if you pay me £50. Right? But that's the problem, is that when I need to raise money as the bank, I often will have to accept the same liquidity discount that I mentioned earlier. And so let's say, just for easy numbers, 
what happens if a bank can only sell its loans for 50%, £450? Then what this means is that if depositors want to withdraw at least £550, the bank will go bankrupt because the bank only has 100 in reserve plus 450 which is what it can get from selling its loans early. So this is really powerful, but it's also really scary. So what it might mean is banks can go bust even if they invest in perfectly safe stuff. Even if every company and every person it's lent to will eventually pay back the bank after 25 years. The problem is a short-term, long-term thing. Sometimes the bank might need to sell early because its people are wanting the money back right now. So what is the bank hoping? The bank is hoping that at any point in time, depositors won't withdraw more than £100. And why might that be a reasonable assumption? Because what causes people to withdraw their money early? Those are things that are random. So it might be that I will withdraw one year, maybe in 2022, because I need to build a new um, kitchen. Maybe Claire might withdraw in 2023 because she wants to go on vacation. Maybe James wants to withdraw in 2024. Why? Because he wants to send a child to university or something like that. And if these things are random, then it's probably reasonable to think that only £100 or less will be withdrawn in every year. So it's fine to only keep £100 in reserve. But what if we all want to withdraw at the same time? And what will cause that is something known as a bank panic. What happens if we are all really worried and we all think that the bank is going to go bankrupt? Right? So this is what happened in the financial crisis. If I believe that actually everybody else wants to withdraw then I might also want to withdraw myself, even if I don't need the money, because I want to make sure that I want to withdraw while people, while the bank still has cash in it. And so this is what we saw, right, in the financial crisis. Places like Northern Rock had people queuing up to get money. Why? Not because they needed money, right, but because they thought that the bank would run out of money. And so this is a very scary thing, which is known as a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right? So the bank could be fundamentally safe. It could have lent to only safe people. But if there's a panic, if everybody suddenly thinks that the bank is going to go bankrupt, then it's everybody's interest to withdraw. And even if the bank is fundamentally safe, it will go bankrupt. It's just like, let's say, there's a party, right? We like to go to parties, but we like to go to parties if we think everybody else is there, right? There's no fun going to a party if you're the only one showing up. And it could be that the host has put on a perfectly good party, but if I think that you're not going to go, and you think that I'm not going to go, then nobody goes, right? And so what this is called is an equilibrium. An equilibrium exists when what I am doing makes sense, given what everybody else is doing. If everybody else is going to the party, I should go. But if everybody else is not going to the party, I 
should not go. So my behaviour depends on what everybody else does. And similarly, with a bank, if everybody else believes the bank is solvent and is not withdrawing, then I don't need to withdraw because the bank's always going to have money. But everybody else is panicking, right? Then it is actually rational for me also to panic and to withdraw my money because that's going to be at the other equilibrium where everybody withdraws. And so this is a bit, this is what we indeed had in things like the financial crisis, where actually things might have been fine, but because of a panic, then everybody was running and then causing the bank to run out of money. We saw things like this in the coronavirus crisis, where if everybody thinks there's going to be a shortage of toilet roll, everybody's going to run for that, and it's also going to lead to supermarkets going out of um, supplies. So what is the solution to this? The solution to this in most countries is deposit insurance. So within the UK, we have deposit insurance where everybody is guaranteed £85,000. So if I'm, invest if I'm saving in a bank and it goes bankrupt, I get £85,000 back from the insurance. Because and so this means that I am not rushing to withdraw. And notice this is £85,000 across every bank. So it is in my interest to, if I have more than £85,000, to spread it out across different banks. So if any bank goes bust, I can get back up to £85,000. And so what this does is it breaks that self-fulfilling prophecy. It breaks that bad equilibrium. If I don't actually need to worry about, deposit, about the bank going bankrupt because of this insurance, I'm not going to withdraw, even if I see anybody, everyone else panicking. So you might think, well, did this even work, right? Why, then, did all of these people line up? And part of the reason is, unfortunately, the lack of financial literacy that we teach in schools, right? If you're a newspaper and you want to create headlines, you will say the bank is going bankrupt, let's go to the bank and take all our money. But that is irresponsible because there is deposit insurance. And so because of that, we don't need to worry in the same degree or even close to the same degree, which is why it's another reason that it's a pleasure to give lectures on things like this, because they might avoid situations which indeed broke the bank. Okay, so that's the first part of my talk, which is how do banks work? What do they do? Right, they borrow at low interest, lend at high interest. They create money to enable people to do transactions, but the big risk they have is maturity mismatch. They might go bankrupt even if they are lending in perfectly safe customers because if other, everyone thinks they're going to go bankrupt, then you have this self-fulfilling prophecy. Let me now go to the second part of my talk, which is how the stock market works. So what is the stock market? It's exactly what it says on the tin. It's a market where you buy and sell stocks. What is a stock? For those who weren't in my first lecture, a stock or a share is partial ownership in a company. I might own a share of Tesco, and what that means is it entitles me to a fraction of the profits that Tesco makes. Now, if I own some shares, then... I can get all the future profits from Tesco. But what happens if I need the money now because I want to go on holiday? I might try and sell my shares. 
and I might go to Claire and say, hey, would you like to buy my shares of Tesco? But she just might not be interested in Tesco. She might like other companies. I might go to other people within this room, but this will be quite futile and I might waste a lot of time trying to do that. So again, let me go to an analogy of normal shops and normal goods. What happens if I want to buy carrots? Because I'm just going to be making a soup this evening, which needs carrots. Well, I could go to my neighbour and I can say, well, uh, do you have any carrots that you want to sell? But they might not have any. I can go to the next neighbour, but they might not have any, and it's going to be a waste of time. So what do I do? I go to a market. And so what I'm going to go to is a farmer's market. And so what is a market? It is nothing more than a place where lots of people are buying and selling the same thing. So if I go to a farmer's market, I can guarantee I'm going to be able to buy carrots because there's multiple people selling them. And even if one or even five of them are out of stock, there will be one market stall, at least, with carrots. So what markets do is they create what's known as liquidity. They make it easy to buy and sell things because there's a lot of people transacting in that common set of goods, which is fruit and vegetables for a farmer's market. And that's exactly what a stock market is. That is a place where people buy and sell shares. So if I want to sell my Tesco shares, I go to the stock market and sell them. And if I want to buy shares in Vodafone, I can go to the stock market and I know there'll be people who are willing to sell them to me. But what does it mean to go to the stock market? Is it a place? How do we trade on a stock market? Well, what we have in the stock market is you have sellers like the farmers at a farmer's market and what they sell is shares. And just like they will quote prices for apples and bananas, they will quote prices at which they're willing to sell the shares for. And those prices are known as the ask price. Right? That's what they're asking you to pay to buy the shares. It's also known as the offer price. But the one big difference between the stock market and the farmer's market is also buyers can post prices. Right, that would be the analogy of me showing up at a farmer's market and saying, I'm willing to buy carrots for 10p. Then anybody who wanted to sell to me can go to me and sell the carrots for 10p. And so what I would do is if I go to the stock market, this is known as posting a bid price, how much I'm willing to pay in order to buy one share of a stock. So you have both buyers and you both have both sellers. And both of them are posting prices, unlike in the farmer's market where only one side is posting. And a trade happens when either a buyer accepts the ask price that a seller is advertising, or a seller accepts the price that a buyer is offering. And how do you show acceptance? Well, what it used to be was you had something known as open outcry. So those were signals where people would actually make signals on the stock market, which was a physical place, and you had physical trading through the show of hands. Now, that's something which is no longer the case. In the 1986 Big Bang, which was a deregulation, you no longer have this. Instead, what happens is it happens electronically. Now, who is it who actually trades? 
So these are people known as market makers. And again, this is a big difference with the farmer's market. With the farmer's market, you are either a seller, the farmers, or you're a buyer, the customers like me. But on the stock market, you can have market makers who are both buyers and sellers, and they quote what's known as two-sided markets. They are both willing to buy from you, and they will quote a price at which they will buy, and they are willing to sell to you, and they'll also quote a price at which they're willing to sell. It's just like if you go to an airport and you want to trade, trade currency, right? the currency exchange will quote a price to buy and sell, let's say, dollars. And it will make the difference between the two. And this difference is known as the bid-ask spread, the difference between the bid price and the ask price. Let me go to an example. This is Tesco. And what I can look up, I found this on the internet, was the bid price was 22475. The offer is 22485. So if you wanted to buy one share of Tesco from on the market, you'd have to pay the high price. And if you wanted to sell your shares, you would receive the low price. And so the market maker benefits on the difference between the two. But you might still think, right, who are these market makers? I've never seen a market maker. How can I get access to a market maker? Right, how you do this is through a stockbroker, which is a more familiar term that you will have probably heard of. So what a stockbroker is, is somebody who has access to market makers. You place your order through a stockbroker and they channel it to the market maker they place the order on your behalf in return for commission. And so the largest stockbroker in the UK, well, what large stockbroker is Hargreaves Lansdowne, which I'm a client of. There are many other stockbrokers, AJ Bell, for example. But what they do is they allow you to place orders in return for some commission. Now, there's two types of orders that you can buy, you can place, sorry, when you work with a stockbroker. One of them is called the market order, which is that you trade at the current market price. Right? So I can place an order to buy 500 shares of Tesco, in which case I'd have to pay 224.85. Or I can place an order to sell, and then I'd get this. So I'm going to trade for the price at which I want to trade. But let's say I want to buy Tesco shares. I don't really think they're worth 224.85. I think they're a good deal if I only had to pay two pounds for them. Now, one thing I could do is I could go to the market every single day and check what the price is going to do, but that's going to be kind of time-consuming. But the good news is I don't need to do this. The good news is I can do something which is called a limit order, which is I will set a maximum price that I'm willing to pay to buy, and only if the price falls below that level will my stockbroker place that order for me. For example, here, I might want to buy 500 shares, and I'm telling my broker I will only buy them if the price falls below £2. And so that's sort of a clever way, because let's say we do want to buy shares in a company which is doing really well, I don't know, it might be Apple, but we're worried that there's a lot of hype there, 
Right? It's been bid up because people are excited about the iPhone 13. Well, maybe we would like to buy it, but only when it's become more affordable. And we can do things like that with a limit order. And notice, we can do limit orders on the opposite side. Let's say we want to cash out. Right, we invested in something. It's done really well. And we do want to take that holiday. Or we want to build that new kitchen. But we don't want to do that immediately. So we still have a little time. We can tell our broker, sell if the price goes up to 300. And so that's a nice part of flexibility. Let me highlight one other important thing that you might see on um, the uh, website, because one of the main goals of this lecture is to demystify a lot of terms that we see. One really important thing here is called XD. So what that means is X dividend. Right, why does that matter? Because what does a share entitle you to? It entitles you to the future dividends of a company. But how does a company know who to pay those dividends to? It has what's known as a record date where any shareholder who owns shares on that date will get the dividend. After that date, well, even if you bought it after that date, you won't get the next dividend because the company has already decided who its shareholders are. And so that is known as the ex-dividend date. So once you buy a share, if it is ex-dividend, what this means is you will not get the next dividend. The first one you're going to get is one after that. But then you might think, but why would I ever buy a share which is ex-dividend? Right, because I'm not getting the next dividend. But actually, the price adjusts for that. Right, so as soon as a share becomes ex-dividend, it becomes cheaper because people know that you're not entitled to the next dividend. And so this is another mystery that I want to clear up. There are some people who think, oh, a share going ex-dividend is really bad. Let's never buy a company with this. But the market knows this, and so the price falls to reflect the fact you're not going to get the next dividend. So what I want, now want to do is to flip this around. Right? What I've done for the most part is to talk about us. Right? We are individuals. We save our money in the bank. We buy shares in companies. But what I also want to do is to flip it around and to look at the company perspective. Because some people in this room might want to start their own business. And they might think, well, how do we raise money? Like we often hear the idea that we raise money on the stock market. But in fact, that can't be the only place to raise money because there are some companies which have never gone to the stock market. So let me just look at the flip side as to how to raise money if you want to start a business. So what a startup business first does is it raises equity privately. So what does privately mean? Well, on a stock market, anybody can buy and sell your shares. You have no idea who's going to buy it. Just like at the farmer's market, anybody can rock up and buy the carrots. But private equity is the idea that I'm going to choose specific people and approach them to invest in my business. So who are the natural people for a startup company? Well, the most natural people are your business partners. So the other people you're setting up the business with you're going to ask them to put some of their own money into the business. But in addition to that, there might be some angel investors who believe in the business, who believe in you, but 
they're not involved in the running of the business. So I'm an angel investor in a number of startups, right? I am a professor in my day job. I don't want to get involved in the running of the business. That's not my expertise. But there are some entrepreneurs who I've known for a long time. I've been a customer of their business, and I'd like to invest. People who are more useful than me are venture capitalists. And these are investment companies that specialize in early stage financing. They're great at trying to find entrepreneurs with a vision, with a way of commercializing that vision, and they will also provide money at the start. So all of this is private. But if you think about a lot of small businesses, you can't buy shares in them because all the people who invest in them are individually approached. So that's what you'll do at the start. And this is known as seed funding, and the name gives it away, right? This is the initial funding that you get from both the business partners and also a few friends and outsiders. But after the business grows, it might need to raise more financing. And so you might have heard the term Series A, and so this is the first financing round after the original seed financing, well, they'll then go to some other venture capitalists because they want to expand. This will also be private, right? You're going to approach selectively a few different investors, but it will probably be a larger set of people than the original seed funders. And you can have the series B and C and D and so on if you have further stages of private financing. But there then comes a point at which a company wants to go public. So what does going public mean? Going public means that your shares are now traded on the stock market. So when somebody goes to a market maker via a broker like Hargreaves Lansdowne, not only can I buy the shares of Tesco, but I also might be able to buy the shares of a newly public company like Deliveroo. That's what it means to go public. This means that you're allowing anybody to buy and sell your shares. Right, so there's a lot of advantages for that. Like one main reason might be that even after the Series A and B and C funding, the company needs even more money to grow. And just approaching individual private investors, you've probably exhausted all of them. By going public, Anybody can buy your shares, and therefore you're expanding the pool of financing that you can raise. And so I've called this primary equity. Why new people are giving me new money that I would not have had otherwise. That's why I'm calling it primary. But there is a second reason for going public, which is let's say we're going to allow the initial investors to cash out. But maybe the original venture capitalists they want now a return on their money because they want to do something else with it. They want to cash out. This I'm calling secondary equity because they're selling their shares secondhand to some new buyers. Okay, so two reasons to go public. Raise new money, which will be used to build new factories and hire new staff. Or the existing investors cash out on the secondary market. And why am I stressing that distinction? Because in reality, there are two ways to go public and to list on the stock market. One of them is known as an initial public offering, an IPO, 
where you indeed do sell new shares to the public, like Deliveroo, for example, then new people could buy in. Or you can do what's a direct, known as a direct listing, where no new shares are created, but the original investors can say, hey, I want to sell out. Does anybody want to buy my shares? And Spotify and Slack, when they went public, they didn't raise any new money, but they were just selling existing shares. Okay, so there's that second part of my talk, which is what is the stock market? It's a market where we buy and sell not carrots, but shares. There are two-sided markets. You can either be a buyer or seller, and you can access those markets through the broker and place either a market order or a limit order. Now, the third part of my talk is how mutual funds work. And so why am I talking about that? You might remember from my last lecture that if you want to save and invest, it's pretty risky to buy one individual company like Tesco or Deliveroo. They might go bust. But instead, what we can do is buy a mutual fund where you have a fund manager who invests in hundreds, maybe thousands of companies, that reduces our risk. It's known as diversification. But I didn't talk about how they actually work, so this is what I'm going to look at now. Now, you might remember from last time, there's two types of mutual fund. One of them is an actively managed mutual fund, where there is a fund manager, a person who makes decisions as to what shares to buy, and what shares to sell. And what she will do is she might have a team of analysts who analyzes the company's financials. She might go out and meet the management and figure out who are good CEOs to invest in. And with these actively managed funds, they have an investment strategy and objective as to how they will invest. So here's a fund that I'm an investor in, which is called the Bailey Gifford Positive Change Fund. And as some of you might know, if you saw my first lecture series, I'm all about sustainable ethical investing, and this is what the fund does. It says it aims to outperform the world index. So this tells me it's investing globally, not just in the UK, but specifically in companies that make a positive impact on society or the environment. This may include companies that address issues like education, social inclusion, healthcare, and the environment. So if I'm going to buy this fund, I'm giving my money to that fund manager, and she is going to choose which ethical companies to invest in. And obviously, I'm going to have to pay her to do that, which is fair. She's providing me the service. And I can pay her in two ways. First, there is initial charge when I first buy into the fund, I have to pay some money. This is 5%. However, my big advice to all of you saving and investing is when you invest, try to do so through a broker like Hargreaves Lansdowne or AJ Bell. Why? Because they initially typically give you a large saving on the initial fund. So this is curious. You might think if I go through a middleman, it's more expensive. Why don't I buy from the fund directly? But in fact, if you go through a broker, they typically will refund you all of the initial charge, or most of it. So that's why it says net initial charge is zero, right? because I'm getting this completely refunded. Why? The broker negotiates a lower charge for its clients. 
Okay, so that's what you typically have to pay with something up front, which might be zero. But one thing which will definitely not be zero is the ongoing charges every year, right? To fund the manager and her team of analysts, I need to pay something. And what I'm paying is 0.81% per year. With this, Hargreaves Lansdowne is also negotiating a saving and therefore my net charge is something like this. And so one thing that I will stress is that charges are really important because these can vary a lot across different funds. Often they're hidden. We might be attracted to a fund because of the name, because of the recent performance, and those things are important. But one important thing is also how much they're charging every year because that can really eat away at what we're getting. So that's uh, what's an um, actively managed fund. And so one of the important things about it is that you can sell your, sh you can cash in at any point in time without going to the market. So if I own Tesco shares and I want to cash in, I need to find somebody to buy that from me. That's not hard because I go to the market and I place my order, but there is still a little bit of a cost. Remember there was that bid ask spread that when I sell, I get less than when I buy. So there's a little bit of cost of selling shares. But with mutual funds, right, when you sell, you actually don't sell to another person. You sell it back to the fund management company. So if I was to need my money now, I didn't go back to Bailey Gifford and I redeem my money from Bailey Gifford. And so this is why the sell and the buy price is exactly the same. There is no difference in the two. I can put more money in without paying a little bit of a penalty. I can take more money out, my money out, without paying a penalty. This is also why you might have heard the term open-ended. This means that the amount of money in the fund can be anything, right? So the fund's done really well. Loads of people put the money into the fund, but they can do that at any time because the fund has no limit to how much cash they're raising. Okay, a couple of other things before I want to open it up to questions. As I mentioned in the last lecture, you might also have a passively managed fund where, let's say I'm pretty agnostic about the stock market. I don't know whether I want to invest in ethical companies. Maybe I just want to invest in everything. Right? So what a passive fund does, otherwise known as an index fund, is one that holds the entire index. Well, what is an index? Well, an example of the index is the FTSE 100, that is the list of the 100 largest companies in the UK. And so you can buy a fund that basically just holds the top 100 companies. So Vanguard has such a fund. The fund objective, right, remember for Bailey Gifford, that was pretty lengthy, saying all of the things that it's doing, right, we're going to invest in education and healthcare and social inclusion. Well, let's look at the fund objective for Vanguard. Pretty planned, right? One sentence, we're just going to hold the FTSE 100. Now, because that's easy, you don't need a fund manager to do that. So it's cheap, and indeed it costs here 0.06%. So this is one of the big trade-offs that you have when you are choosing to buy a particular fund. Do I want to buy active funds, which are more expensive, but you have somebody who might have the potential to beat the market? Or do I want to buy something which is passive and index, like the Vanguard Tracker Fund. 
One final slide before I open up to questions. And why do I have this slide here? Because this is one big um, thing which is really new and has been growing recently, which is the idea of exchange-traded funds. So they're a bit like a halfway house between a mutual fund and a share. They invest in many, many companies. And here's an example. It's the Global Clean Energy Fund, where if I'm to buy this fund, it's going to invest in lots of clean energy companies. However, the difference, the interesting thing, is what happens when I buy and sell. When I buy and sell, I'm buying and selling from other people, from the market, not from the company. So the whole idea of a bid-ask spread comes back into play. If I'm selling, I'm getting less than what I'm paying when I buy. With Bailey Gifford, I can cash into Bailey Gifford at any point in time, but here I need to go to the market, pay a commission, and I need to um, suffer this bid-ask spread. So you might think, well, why would you ever want to do this? Well, these funds actually tend to have lower annual management charges rather than the active management funds that I mentioned. What are your thoughts on the increasing presence of cryptocurrencies in relation to this? Yeah, so this is something where, so a cryptocurrency is something where there's not actually an asset behind it, but backing, backing it, but people think the cryptocurrency has value because other people think it adds value. So this is something which is really controversial. So there is a view that this is the definition of a bubble, something which actually has no inherent value, but it's just the value comes from what other people think. And so I personally am not investing in cryptocurrency. But there's other people who think, well, it is something where, because people are not going to be um, um, believing in governments and, and actual money, people are going to start investing in. But the reason why I'm choosing not to do this is that the standard techniques that we're going to be studying over the course of this lecture series, forecasting profits and dividends, you can't go with cryptocurrency. So this is pretty much of a black box. And I would probably advise most amateur investors not to invest in it, because when you're trading cryptocurrency, you are trading against people who do this for a living. They sort of study all of the prices and all of the moods movements and this is something where it's a bit risky for an average investor to to get into is a retail bank allowed to play with its hundred however it likes trading short term or is that disallowed so with banks they can do anything that they want with the money basically so with that money it could either lend to mortgages which are relatively safe or it could lend to companies and companies have different risks which are known as um, credit ratings However, what the regulator typically will do is do what's known as a risk weighting. So Aish was showing you something pretty simple where they were saying, well, you need to hold back 10% of um, what you borrow in reserve. But in fact, that 10% will change according to what you're holding as the bank. So if you are putting your money into something which is riskier, then you're going to be having to hold more. So this is a term known as risk-weighted assets. Hello. Uh, I was wondering, what is the motivation for a company to go for a direct listing if they're not raising any money? Yeah, so why would you go for a direct listing? It's because the individual investors might want to cash out. And so um, because the venture capitalists might have other things that they might want to fund. Also, some of the in individual, the, the in initial investors might be the founders of the company. And having slaved away for a long time, they might want to liquidate it because they want to fund their children going to university, for example. Thank you so much, Alex. Um, this might have been mentioned in the previous lecture, but I didn't see it. 
Um, can you explain how an acquisition of a public company affects its shares? Yeah, so what happens in an acquisition, if, if I wanted to take over a company, what I do is I make an offer to all of the existing shareholders of the company, because they're the current owners, and I'll say, well, I will buy the company, your shares from you, at a price. And that price that you typically will have to offer will be significantly higher than the current price. So what you'll do is you'll make an offer for a um, saying, I'm going to buy the shares for a certain price. Typically, then, what happens is that the board of directors will recommend that you either, to the current shareholders, either to accept it or to reject it. Nowadays, it's actually quite difficult to do a takeover without the board recommending it. So the board will typically say accept. Then you as a shareholder will get a notification from your broker saying there's the takeover happening. Will you accept or, or reject that bid? And so that was something I didn't actually cover in the last lecture, but I did cover, I think, three years ago. So it was called Mergers and Acquisitions, Do They Create or Destroy Values? That was my first ever Gresham Lecture Series. Thank you. I'm an amateur investor who has great fun. It, I've read repeatedly that only a minority of active fund managers over the long term beat passively managed index funds. Uh, I have two holdings, both of which have done very well. One I chose myself in dear tractors. The other is an S&P. They've both done well. But where do you stand on the active versus passive lower management debate. Thank you very much. This is one of the most important questions in investing, and there's been a lot of academic research looking at it. And it typically supports what you're saying, is that the average active fund does not beat the market after taking into account their higher fees. And then even more embarrassingly, the past performance of active funds doesn't really predict future performance. So you might think, okay, maybe the average one doesn't beat the market, but maybe there's some funds which systematically do beat the market, but it's actually quite difficult to, to pick out who those um, ones are because the ones that do well in one year typically don't do well the next year. However, even though that is something which occurs on average, I personally, just from the funds that I invest in, do believe that there are some funds which do systematically outperform. So I think the Bailey Gifford one, which is one that's done that, another that I invest in is called the Parnassus workplace fund that's based on companies that treat their employees well, which is indeed something that a lot of my academic research is on. So what you can try to look at is, are there funds that persistently outperform over many, many years? The academic research might find that there's not many of them, but I believe that there are some. Now, there are people in the other side who will say, well, they could have just been lucky over five years, right? You might toss a coin and then five times in a row, it could still land heads. That doesn't mean the coin is unbiased. That doesn't mean the coin is biased. It's still lucky. And so that's why different people can look at the same data and have differences of opinion. But my opinion is most funds don't outperform trackers, but I do think there are a few that do. Well, thank you so much, Professor Edmonds. I'm afraid we are going to have to draw it to a close there, unfortunately. Um, I'd like to invite you to thank Professor Edmonds for his lecture. <laughs> <laughs>